Hello and welcome to Nightlight. The story is told of Winston Churchill's reaction when news came of the peace treaty, so-called peace treaty, in 1938, the treaty that inadvertently would set off World War II. It's reported that as Churchill was sitting at a table with his family in the Savoy Hotel in London, the sound of celebration erupted from the broad dining area as the British people responded to the news that Chamberlain had signed the treaty with Hitler. Everyone breathed a sigh of relief. Peace in our time. Churchill, however, sat silently with tears on his cheeks, and he said to the people who couldn't hear him, they do not know what lies before them. Whether this story is factual or symbolic, it's accurate in its meaning. The treaty that was celebrated as bringing peace in our time plunged Great Britain and the world into the Second World War in only a matter of days. On the day when the BBC reported that Germany had broken the treaty and invaded Poland, everyone knew what that meant. No one needed an explanation as to what was now at stake when the announcer's voice droned out the words that, quote, a state of war now exists between England and Germany. Everyone then considered what preparation for war meant and took immediate action. As agonizing as it was, the one good in all that was that there was no need for various points of view to be dissected and argued over anymore. There was no more propagandizing voices aimed at spreading all sorts of misinformation and disinformation to feed into a disruptive political agenda. The clear and present danger brought a decisively unified response in the British people. Later in the war, Churchill would remark that in wartime, quote, truth is so vital that it must be protected by a bodyguard of lies. In the five-year struggle against evil, there would be many occasions when it was necessary to hide the truth in order to protect the right outcome. It's a great study in itself to see how strategic information on the misrepresentation of information was an effective weapon as effective as any bomb sometimes far more effective in times of such great national stress many secret events may be occurring and there are rumors of war that abound but the initial awakening of the nation to the reality of their plight was not ambiguous Everyone understood what being at war meant. Everyone knew who their enemy was. Everyone agreed on their duty. Many Americans in this present crisis don't seem to be aware that we are also now at war. And let me make something very clear. I am not seeking to be metaphorical or hyperbolic. I am speaking quite literally. Enemies, both foreign and domestic, have set themselves to overturn the constitution of this country, then to plunder the nation's economy, destroy its freedom, ruin its family life, overturn the general welfare, and ultimately remove God and his word from the life of the nation. But because a clear sound of the trumpet has not been heard, no one seems to know what action to take or whether there is any true need for action. No one knows we are at war or few seem to know it. But when I say we are at war, I mean it literally. The nature of this war has not been announced to the nation and we are not prepared to be unified against its enemies. On the contrary, the so-called media is nothing more or less than the propaganda engine of the invaders. But we have so mixed our national identity with this enemy that it is now almost impossible to see any way of separating the wheat from the chaff. So we then let the wheat and the chaff grow together until the final harvest. That's what Jesus said in the first reference to the 
growing of the wheat and the tares. Maybe that is what we are to do. I mean that seriously. Maybe that's what we must do. For our main objective, our prime directive, is not political unity, but the gospel. Jesus said, I'm coming to bring a sword. So it could be that what we're facing now is not some political struggle to bring the country back into some semblance of political unity, but the separating of the wheat and the tares will take place only in the harvest. Until the, in the meantime, it grows. They grow together as they seem to be doing. But Jesus also said, "A house divided against itself can't stand." Our enemies believe that that is true, and have sought for all my lifetime and beyond to chip away at the truths that united us as one nation under God. Yes, I am painfully aware of the terrible inconsistencies that operated during those years of this nation. I grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi, but that does not make room for embracing leftist foolishness as we're seeing people do now. That chipping away was ignored by most of my generation. Now, you would think that the destructive forces previously observed from only a distance, which are now marching down our streets and breathing down our necks, would be sufficient to cause some degree of unified clarity about the source of the danger and the needed response. But we don't have the luxury of that. Not only are we not aware that we are at war, but we are passively continuing to allow the enemy full access Churchill's statement referring to the value of truth being of such importance that it must be safeguarded by a bodyguard of lies is still true. I would like to believe there is some great secret plan in place to suddenly burst upon the scene and rescue the nation from its own self-destructiveness. That is a popular subject among many different commentators, and I would like to hope that there is some degree of accuracy in what they say. But even if there is some accuracy, let me make this clear. Both history and scripture do not support the idea that rescue from a slowly sinking national character is ever accomplished by some sudden, miraculous intervention. We do not become what we have not been as a nation by some instant invasion of evil. Let me say that again more clearly. We do not become what we are now presently as a nation by some instant invasion of evil. No. We have chosen evil little by little by little. Either by willful embrace or by passive non-resistance. But none of us are guiltless. In retrospect, we must all admit that is true. Now that which was only a short time ago seen as a fringe insane element in our culture has become ensconced in nearly every level of culture and society so that they actually refer to stable, normal people as uh, aberrant. Woe to them who call good evil and evil good. Your once family-friendly local store is becoming an extension of sexual politics so perverts can come into the restroom with your daughter. And that's called freedom. Your once family-friendly local pharmacy is now a disseminator of politicized false medicine while withholding helpful medicines that are, again, politically rather than medically disseminated. News sources are nothing more than propaganda machines. The lies they have trafficked in have successfully turned many people into easily programmed robots with no discernment or ability to read nuance. Nearly all forms of social media are clearly and unabashedly 
nothing but thought control enemies of your freedom. Yet people continue to do business with them as if they are just manifesting a different, a different opinion. Instead of seeing them as the open, willful destroyers of truth that they are. Many of God's people have been cooperating with the spirit of this age for so long that now that there is a call for real discernment and real taking of stands for truth, they are finding they are unable to do so. They failed to use those muscles for so long they've atrophied. Some are so far gone that they don't even see any need to take a stand. They're fully asleep on the battlefield. Not only can they not stand, they cannot even call evil what it is or see it when it is right in front of them. Out of personal convenience, we as a nation have tolerated evil for decades. And now evil is gaining control. And we will not be instantly freed from the result of our progressive failure to stand. So what is our hope? Well, repent and believe is the introductory call of the gospel in Mark chapter 1. It has come to take on such religious connotations, however, that accidentally obscure the simple, clear meaning of those words. So we need to strip away the religious connotations and see those two words clearly for what they say. To repent and believe means to listen to truth that we have been ignoring. Truth that has become, we've become so accustomed to hearing without acting that we have become deaf to it. Hear it, then embrace that truth enough to cause a change in our direction, a change in our way of living. It is applicable to our response to the gospel, yes. But is it's applicable to our response to any exposure of lies that have been allowed to deform and slowly destroy us. It's, it's insane to think that repent and believe only applies to some religious thing and doesn't apply to reality in general. Repentance and believing is an ongoing, lifelong work. So it is precisely the original call of the gospel we see in Scripture that is now still calling to us in this present crisis. Repent, that is, Hear the call of the Spirit to take action against evil, whatever form that evil has taken against you, and believe. Believe that God's Word and His way of living and acting will ultimately destroy the evil. There may certainly be some hidden weapons for good that have to be secretly implemented and is now at work to stand against the invading army of wickedness that we've allowed and actually participated in. But such a rescue will not come to a people who are just as passive and inactive for truth as we were when we allowed things to get this bad. God allowed the rot and he will allow the rot to continue until the smell of it brings about godly action for good from all of us. Now this is great, great news. It's never meant to bring a sense of dread or condemnation or hopelessness. This is the very opposite. It's never enough to embrace truth passively by merely giving mental assent. To embrace truth automatically demands a simultaneous rejection of the lie. The grave present danger in many is that they give mental assent to freedom and truth. But their living, their way of life, their actions are fearful and are bending into lies. So this message of repentance and believing is great news if we respond. Otherwise, there's every reason to to dread what will come. Jeremiah chapter 6 verse 10 speaks to this. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may listen? And the Hebrew word for listen is obey, respond. Look, their ear is uncircumcised. 
It's, it's fat with pleasure. That's the re- reference to uncircumcised. They cannot respond. He, he didn't say they won't respond. He says they can't respond because their ears are uncircumcised. See, the word of the Lord is to them a reproach. They have no delight in the word of the Lord. Later on in chapter 9, verse 3, he, is, he says, they are not valiant for the truth. That's the King James Version. In that particular translation, that's where the King James excels in clarity and uh, poignancy and power. They are not valiant for the truth. Other translations make more impotent uh, remarks about there's no truth in the land or something like that. But the the, the idea of this, the statement is people are not taking up arms in the spirit for the truth. They are not highly motivated for truth. He goes on to describe them as being slanderous of each other, deceiving and being deceived. They are they do not speak the truth. They have actually taught themselves to speak lies. That's an interesting phrase. They've taught themselves to speak lies. That means when they hear something they don't want to take a stand about, they calculate about how to respond to it in a way so as to avoid truth. They've taught themselves to speak lies and weary themselves to do iniquity. Their very dwelling place has become deceit. Well, that's a good verse for most news agencies. Through deceit, they refuse to know me, says the Lord. So what does God say he must do with such a people? Well, I'll tell you this. He does not throw them away. He says in verse 7, Therefore, in the face of this terrible evil that they have chosen, I will refine them and I will try them. There are several metaphors used to express the same thing. Circumcision, refining, trying, all refer to some process which cuts or burns or washes away the excess in order to return clean, clear function to a person or to a nation. Circumcision cuts away excess flesh. Refining purges out excess elements. Trying or chastising, as some translations say it, remove hindrances to proper function. These are all referring to the process necessary to make what we say we believe become proven by what we do, not just what we claim. We have long been aware that our church systems have become weak, enculturated, even adulterously mixed with the very elements of the world we were called to reach with truth. Or they have become mere anachronisms, museums of a bygone era of religious tradition with little or no effective presence as salt and light. We have thought some revival would occur which would then draw people back to church. No, that's never been God's plan. That's never been God's purpose. And that's not what God's doing now. God is purging us individually and corporately. We are being forced out into the world we retreated from into our Christian ghettos. And a cleansing trying time to come was seen by prophetic eyes as the only means of bringing about that kind of awakening. I believe we are in this trying time now, thank God. It's clear, or it should be, that the instrument of cleansing is, ironically, the battle that ensues upon us as a result of our failure to act wisely all along. We are cleansed by the very struggle with evil that we passively allowed to grow in our culture. That's where we are now. Each of us must discern what God is after in us individually and deal as honestly as we can where we are with what is being revealed in our own character. 
what we have allowed that God no longer will tolerate in us? How are we to take action in the greater battle, whether inwardly or publicly? Is it to take on a school board or other political elements? Care for the poor? Stand for truth in an obviously false situation of some kind? Or is it more privately to hit head on some personal inner battle with our own flesh that we've been allowed or allowing or or even excusing for for too long. I'll tell you this, it's probably both. And when you deal with something in you privately, truly deal with it in honesty and effectiveness before God, the result of that will almost always be an outward display of that same cleansing work demonstrated in your actions in the world around you. I don't mean you get self-righteous because you're proud of your own purity, but you become aware, you become awake, you, you delight in the word of the Lord. You're no longer uncircumcised in your ears and eyes. You see things as they really are, you hear things as they really are, and the truth in you that you humbled yourself to yield to responds to that in righteous action. Evil is not self-sustaining. Write that in big letters and put it somewhere where you'll see it every day. Evil is not self-sustaining. Evil is a parasite that can only survive if it is fed from good. It feeds off the good. So for evil to thrive, it must be fed. Our passivity has allowed it to feed. But once we see clearly, once we are circumcised in our ears and eyes and have the blinding, deafening elements purged from us, we again being begin to delight in the word of the Lord and our actions for good will begin to deprive evil of its freedom to feed. Evil will die. In some cases, depending on how much a population chooses to feed the evil system, it may seem to be ongoing and uh, monolithic. The Soviet system lasted for 70 years, but it did not last at all once the truth set in motion an awakening response in God's people. Once people began to believe and repent, the evil was destroyed. We've long needed this purging, shaking, disruption of the American pseudo-religious shallow status quo. I do not enjoy the process, but I welcome it. I do not say this out of some high tower of self-righteousness. I have long been aware of the parts of my own life that have participated in the problem. But I welcome the purging, not only for myself, but for the country. And I believe it will bring a harvest of healing and life. For that is the only purpose for purging, is the production of a harvest unto life. So what what do we need to look at next in reference to this necessary place that we're in? Well, I think we need to unpack for a few minutes a subject that we've looked at many times before. I have six hours of it in the series called How to Discern Deception. But we are living in such an hour of deception uh, that uh, we we need to look at it. We need to unpack it. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 when the disciples came to him and asked after he had told them that the temple was going to be destroyed and there was not going to be one stone left on top of the other that wouldn't be torn down, he walked away from them. They came chasing after him with bated breath and beating heart and asked, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Because they thought the end of the age must be the end of the temple. The end of the temple must be the end of the age. Certainly for them, The end of the temple was the end of the age as they had known it. And that's a whole other subject I don't have time to unpack. But the the dismantling of the temple was certainly the end of of their age. 
But Jesus responds to them with this opening statement. Beware not to let anyone deceive you. And then begins what's called the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. And then later, Paul in 1 Thessalonians, also unpacking the subject of the end of the age or the close of the age, also says, don't let yourself be deceived. So the closing of an age is a time of great danger of deception. Why is that? Well, there's a lot I wish I had time to say about that. We may have to take that on. It's just a single subject of its own. But you don't need me to tell you. I hope you don't need me to tell you that with here we are living in a, a culture of great communication, great electronic instant information sending and receiving, and there has never been less clarity of what's true and what's not. We are living in a deluge of misinformation, disinformation, partial information, manipulated information, which is just another way of saying disinformation, uh, fake news. Every now and then you can squeeze out some elements of accuracy uh, between the lines, but it takes pooling of information and a, a lot of hard work to come up with a pretty accurate scenario of what's really going on. But what makes this time uh, more dangerous than just the uh, electronic elements and the overabundance of information making real information hard to sort out is the incredible passivity and stupidity of the general public. It is absolutely amazing to me. And I, I don't, I don't, I hope this doesn't sound unkind. I am not trying to be polemic. I am not trying to be unnecessarily uh, confrontive. But when your house is on fire, you'd hope people would be confrontive with you and burst in the door with the screaming, your, your house is on fire. So I'm really not too concerned with how insulted somebody might be with what I'm about to say. But it is unbelievable to me that sometimes I'll hear so-called believers say, well, I heard on NBC News or, or I heard on ABC News or I heard from CNN so-and-so and so-and-so. Fox is just as guilty. These large news organizations are no more trustworthy to communicate accurate information than the FDA is trustworthy in protecting your food and your drugs. Of course, people, some people will respond and say, well, Clay, you, you know, you don't, you don't have any confidence in ABC, CBS, NBC, and Fox News because you obviously don't even have enough sense to have confidence in the great FDA. I can't tell you how many doctors I've had tell me that the FDA is one of the greatest enemies of health in America, of any organization. These are doctors who have great qualifications and years of experience, and one of their years of experience is in dealing with the FDA's political manipulation of the market for their own agenda and purposes. We are, we are sick in every direction. People are sick and dying and becoming more and more and more dependent on our, uh, our false information and now that falsehood of information has taken over the medical field so that doctors are speaking more as politicians than as scientists. And so to have to explain that to people is very disheartening. To have to say to people over and over and over what should be clear to them on their own 
observant, in their own observance, is is very difficult. But I know I know how Jeremiah must have felt. I know how Ezekiel must have felt. Uh, I say that with humility. I don't place myself up up on a pedestal with Jeremiah or Ezekiel. But I'm telling you. They were disheartened. Isaiah was disheartened at the fact that their message was over, constantly being uh, rebuked and refuted by the very people that claimed to be godly, that claimed to speak the truth and love the truth and want to communicate the truth. No, they are not valiant for the truth, Jeremiah says, because they are living with uncircumcised ears. Well, are we living with uncircumcised ears? You know, the people of the first century, the Pharisees, the the very disseminators of truth to Israel, Jesus says, search the scriptures. In them you think you have life, and they point to me, and you will not come to me that you might have life. Uh, on the road to Emmaus. So remember the, the wonderful, wonderful story of, of the two disciples on the road to, to Emmaus. Jesus is walking with them after the resurrection and they are understandably distraught beyond words because of what's happened to Jesus and they don't know it's Jesus walking with them. And and his response to them, and I don't, I don't think he was saying it Sternly, I think he was saying it maybe even somewhat lightheartedly, but oh fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did you not know these things had to happen the way they happened? And I used to read those stories as as a young boy, and I would struggle. You know, why did you make it so hard for them to understand? I mean, Typical. I was always, you know, Psalm Psalm 18 says to the froward, God appears froward. The word froward is just an old English word that means stubborn, moving in the wrong direction. To and fro, froward uh, is to, to be moving away from reality. To those who are not in reality, God appears to not be in reality is the way I'm. I'm interpreting that. We tend to want to blame God. How often do we want to blame God when things are mysterious or things are not clear? Over and over and over it turns out who's right and who's wrong, but we still want to make out that God is not fair or God is not true or God is not coming through with his side of the the agreement and so forth. But Jesus, I would read those words and I would I would want to I would want to be frustrated with the Lord. Why are you why are you being so harsh? Why are you being so uh, rebuking of their lack of information? Who would have ever dreamed it was going to go this way? Who would have ever dreamed it was going to turn out the way it did? Even John the Baptist, as faithful as John the Baptist was, even he didn't see what was coming. Uh, he thought that Messiah was going to be a political Messiah. He thought that this was going to have a political outcome uh, in the favor of, of the rise of, of Israel's uh, Israel as a nation and the destruction of Rome. And Jesus responded to John out of the scriptures. He quoted to him the scriptures. And so Jesus is saying to the disciples on the Emmaus Road, it's been right there in the scriptures all along. You just only read the parts you wanted and interpreted them the way you wanted them to go. And as a result, you were not prepared to see what was going to unfold. Now, let me say in defense of us, not in defense of us, but in hopefully to bring some clarity. I don't think anybody would have understood fully what was going to come. But uh, 
On the other hand, if you read Isaiah 52, 53, you would have. If you read Psalm 22, you, you would have been prepared. But they were no different than we are. They had a mindset that was built around not only the scriptures themselves, but on the enculturated ideas around those scriptures and how they were going to be fulfilled, and it became uh, the only thing they could see. They wouldn't see anything else. We're, I'm probably going to have to unpack this a lot more uh, in a maybe a, a session just on the subject, but I'm saying all that to say this. We have so much the same dynamics going on. We think things are going to go a certain way based on a certain school of thought. We have uh, tied our our scriptures to that school of thought rather than tying our school of thought to the scriptures. We let the school of thought correct the scriptures rather than letting the scriptures correct our school of thought. And as a result, when things don't go the way we assumed they were going to go, even though we, quote, had the Bible verses to prove it, uh, we get discouraged. And uh, this is where a lot of deception comes in. Be sure that you don't allow yourself to be deceived. Now, notice, how do you allow yourself to be deceived? If someone's lying to me and they are telling me lies out of a well-planned, manipulated plot of misinformation, how can I be held responsible for believing that lie? And yet, God seems to hold us responsible for being duped. As I actually said in that series uh, on deception, deception is always preceded by rebellion of some form. We don't become deceived unless something has set us up to be open for deception. I know that sounds like a black and white statement that leaves no room for nuance, and there may be some slight nuance that is allowed. But in an ongoing, long-term deception that we are being duped into, we are choosing lies for some personal convenience. Again, uh, we're probably going to have to unpack that more in some detail uh, when we have more time. <clears throat> but I want to say to you in the closing moments of this time together, beware that you are keeping your heart before the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Jesus says. Why is it that when God came among them, they didn't see him? It's because they were not pure in heart. What is it to be pure in heart? Well, it means, among other things, not to have a mixed agenda. Lord, I don't want to be deceived is a good prayer, but if, the, if it's motivated by, I want to appear like I'm in the know, and I don't want to be uh, anybody's fool, that's not a very good motivation. If I don't want to be deceived because I love the truth and I long to know the truth and I want to communicate the truth, that is a good, that is a good prayer. None of us wants to be duped. None of us wants to be played a fool. Uh, we want to be in the know and we want to come across like we're in the know. But there's just a lot of stuff happening that I'm not sure about. I don't know if it's true or not. I don't know if it's real or not. I don't know if it's right or not. Uh, I know 45 years ago, 50, well, 50 years ago, keeps changing with the calendar. I keep forgetting to change the number. Over 50 years ago, I, I saw that the pre-trib rapture idea was not in Scripture and made no sense. And I rejected it. 
I lost a lot of friends and probably didn't get invited to a lot of churches because I was pretty open about that subject. But it didn't matter because I I loved the truth. I wanted to know the truth. I didn't just want to be in the know. I, I didn't just want to appear like I had inside information that makes me special. I just wanted to communicate what I believed was in the scriptures. And I still, to this day, strongly take that stand. I believe the idea of a pre-tribulation rapture is false to the scriptures and does a disservice to the body of Christ and does a greater disservice to the people in the world who need the body of Christ to be fully present to our calling and to take action uh, for righteousness uh, in communicating the gospel to them, not only in word, but also in deed. We're failing to be salt and light. We're looking for a hole in the sky. Uh, and I think when people don't see that hole in the sky and don't get to make their supernatural escape from the demands of the, the age we live in, there's going to be a lot of people crash and burn. And so I'm able to say to them right now, see to it that you are not deceived. I mean, uh, I've got a lot of friends. I've said this over and over and over. I've got lots of friends who are still pre-trib guys and girls. And I love them and I think they love me and I'm not trying to make them change. I'm just seeking to uh, help them prepare for the possibility that it may not go the way they have assumed it was going to go. And, of course, they get frustrated when I say assumed because they say, wait a minute, this is not an assumption. I, I have good, solid Bible teaching on this subject. Well, they've got a, they've got a long, well, it's not that long. It's about 250 years 150 years of, of woven, manipulated theological thinking that has become a, a, a tapestry of affirmations to what I think is a false premise. And as a result, uh, they have got a structure that they believe is underpinned by layers and layers of, of solid, stable history. I believe it's just a reaffirmation of falsehoods over and over and over that end up making a thick falsehood uh, that holds up a thin falsehood. But anyway, it's not a matter of who's right or who's wrong in our ideas. It's a matter of our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart. They will see if the Pharisees had had a pure heart they would have recognized Yahweh when he appeared in Messiah. But because they did not really know and want to know the Lord, they had uncircumcised ears, uncircumcised hearts. They were full of legalism, but saw no heart of the law. They loved to quote the law for the benefit of their own legal structure, but they did not obey the law out of love. And we'll, we'll, maybe we'll look at some of those verses that affirm that. Thankfully, there were many Pharisees whose hearts were open, and they did see who Jesus was. And, and I, I think we need to be careful not to paint too broad a brush when we talk about Pharisees as if that, that's just a you know, lost cause. There were, thankfully, many who were not part of that lost cause. But... Anyway, can you hear my heart? Do you hear what I'm saying? Okay, as we bring this to a close, let me state one more time that I do believe we are at war. I believe there is a literal, actual war going on behind the scenes, both in the spirit, yes, but in the natural. Uh, I don't mean at all to spiritualize this. This is where we get in trouble, and I'm, I'm, I don't have time to go off chasing this issue. 
But we have so separated the spirit world from the natural world that we have become almost Gnostic. Uh, and unbiblical, obviously, and impractical. We are in a spiritual war, yes, but I believe that spiritual war is manifesting itself now fully in what has been going on underneath and behind closed doors for generations. It's all coming into the light so that everything will become what it really is. And everything will be manifested. Jesus said everything will be brought to the light. And what are what, those things spoken in secret will be shouted from the housetops. Everything will be brought to the light. Now, in that process, the Holy Spirit wants to deal with you privately so that judgment does begin at the house of God. Then it goes to the, the rest of the population of the earth. So God is dealing with us privately and dealing with our secret sin and dealing with our undealt with stuff in our own private life. Uh, and that's good. That's all good. But uh, in the process, a lot of the stuff that has brought on this current evil is because we have allowed it in our passivity and in our self-deception. And uh, he is allowing it to be part of the purgative process that helps cleanse us from allowing it. Now, that being the case, how long will it take for that process to go on? Only God knows. So it is our place to rest in him, trust him for the for the finished work. He who has begun a good work in us will finish it. Now to him who is able to keep us from falling and present us faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, be honor and glory forever. He will guide us into all the truth. He will keep us from evil. He's promised all these things. And so it is right for you and me to pray that we be not led into temptation, but be delivered from evil. Um, and so being not led into temptation would be another way of saying, don't let us be deceived. Keep us from deception. And if there's anything in our hearts that makes us have a tendency toward embracing that which is deceptive, cleanse it out of us so that we are not deceived. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that makes us subject to deception is the desire to be in the know uh, for an egotistical reason. But another thing that can lead us in, into deception is an uh, arrogant resistance to, uh, to being deceived. Like, like, the, El, like the, the dwarfs in, in the, the last battle of the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, they've been deceived by the counterfeit Antichrist. And so they would not embrace Aslan because they had not, they, they were angry because they had been fooled by Taslan, the counterfeit Aslan. And so when the real messengers of Aslan came, they wouldn't listen to the real messengers of Aslan because they said, no, 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 we've been fooled once, we're not going to be fooled again. We, uh, we bowed to Tashlan and he turned out to be false, so we're not even going to embrace Aslan. Uh, brilliant picture Lewis paints there of how fear of deception is itself a, a deception. So how are we how are we protected from deception by loving the truth? And the truth is not a list of information. The truth is a person. Truth is spelled with a capital T. We love Him. We trust Him. We follow him the best we know how. And if we, dis, if we miss obeying him, that's not the same as disobeying him. To disobey is a willful act of rebellion. To misobey, like a child who thought he was hearing his father's voice, but it wasn't his father's voice. No father in his right mind would punish a child who he thought was obeying. He would count that as obedience. You are called to love and obey and follow Jesus.
And as you do that with whatever is in front of you, that's all God wants of you because that is building the relationship between you and Him. That's all that matters. You and I are overwhelmed with too much information. You cannot, you cannot protect and defend what's happening in China. You cannot protect and defend what's happening in Afghanistan. You cannot uncover and correct the evil and the foolishness that's happening inside America. You can't even take care of what's happening on your own block in your own neighborhood. But you can take care of whatever the Holy Spirit has put right in front of you every day. I can, I can be more loving and caring and uh, sensitive to Mary, to my children, to my neighbors, uh, and to the person at the store that aggravates me and frustrates me. I had to go back and ask forgiveness to there was somebody in a store not long ago because they did something that irritated me and I just was in one of those moments when I forgot who I was and forgot what I was called to do and be and I just, I just acted like the old clay used to act and I had to go back and put it right. I, I could do that. I could have avoided that and just gone and done something great and important like recording a nightlight. But God wouldn't have it. He said, you know what? Nobody needs to hear a word you have to say till you go ask that lady that you insulted for forgiveness for being uh, unkind to her. Do the small things and you will be faithfully empowered to do the big things. But if you don't do the big things, if you don't do the small things, you'll not be able to do the big things. Well, I hope this helps. God bless you all. Thank you, as always, thank you so much for your ongoing support and help. And uh, I hope what we give you is helpful too. We love you and we thank you for being who you are and where you are. In Jesus' name, bye-bye.